0: open if
1: you would to Exodus chapter 25. It's been three weeks since we were gathered for our regular evening worship. So last time we talked about the offering for the tabernacle at the beginning of chapter 25. And in the second part of the chapter, God describes exactly what they're supposed to do with the materials gathered in terms of making the furniture. And then next week, We will look at the structure. Exodus 25, starting at verse 10. And they shall make an ark of acacia wood. Two and a half cubits shall be its length, and a cubit and a half its width, and a cubit and a half its height. And you shall overlay it with pure gold, inside and out you shall overlay it, and shall make on it a molding of gold all around. You shall cast four rings of gold for it, and put them in its four corners. Two rings shall be on the one side, and two rings on the other side. And you shall make poles of acacia wood, and overlay them with gold. You shall put the ring- poles into the rings on the sides of the ark, that the ark may be carried by them. The poles shall be in the rings of the ark. They shall not be taken from it. And you shall put into the ark the testimony which I will give you. You shall make a mercy seat of pure gold. Two and a half cubits shall be its length, And a cubit and a half its width. And you shall make two cherubim of gold. Of hammered work you shall make them at the two ends of the mercy seat. Make one cherub at one end, and the other cherub at the other end. You shall make the cherubim at the two ends of it of one piece with the mercy seat. And the cherubim shall stretch out their wings above, covering the mercy seat with their wings. And they shall face one another. The faces of the cherubim shall be toward the mercy seat. You shall put the mercy seat on top of the ark. And in the ark you shall put the testimony that I will give you, and there I will meet with you, and I will speak with you from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubim which are on the ark of the testimony, of all things which I will give you in commandment to the children of Israel. You shall also make a table of acacia wood. Two cubits shall be its length, a cubit its width, and a cubit and a half its height. And you shall overlay it with pure gold and make a molding of gold all around. You shall make for it a frame of a handbreadth all around, and you shall make a gold molding for the frame all around. And you shall make for it four rings of gold and put the rings on the four corners that are at its four legs. The rings shall be close to the frame as holders for the poles to bear the table. And you shall make the poles of acacia wood and overlay them with gold that the table may be carried with them. You shall make its dishes, its pans, its pitchers, and its bowls for pouring. You shall make them of pure gold. And you shall set the showbread on the table before me always. You shall also make a lampstand of pure gold. The lampstand shall be of hammered work. Its shaft, its branches, its bowls, its ornamental knobs and flowers shall be of one piece. And six branches shall come out of its side. Three branches of the lampstand out of one side, and three branches of the lampstand out of the other side. Three bowls shall be made like almond blossoms on one branch with an ornamental knob and a flower, and three bowls made like almond blossoms on the other branch With an ornamental knob and a flower. And so for the six branches that come out of the lampstand. On the lampstand itself, four bowls shall be made like almond blossoms, each with its knob and flower. And there shall be a knob under the first two branches of the same, a knob under the second two branches of the same, and a knob under the third two branches of the same, according to the six branches that extend from the lampstand. Their knobs and their branches shall be of one piece. All of it shall be one hammered piece of pure gold. You shall make seven lamps for it, and they shall arrange its lamps so that they give light in front of it, and its wick trimmers and their trays shall be of pure gold. It shall be made of a talent of pure gold with all these utensils, and see to it that you make them according to the pattern which was shown you on the mountain. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would help us to keep our brains turned on. Help us to care about the furniture in the tabernacle. Because we care about you and we want to know what you're like. And when we see the furniture of your house, we know what you're like. Lord, show yourself to us in this furniture. Help me to speak boldly and clearly. Free us all from distraction, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. the book of Exodus has 40 chapters. Verse 15 deal with leaving Egypt. And then chapters 25 through 40 deal with the building of the tabernacle. So we have the same number of chapters devoted to leaving Egypt and to building the tabernacle. Now, why do those two processes get equal space? Most readers would say, well, not because they're equally interesting. Maybe there's a few interior designer types who love that back half of the book of Exodus and start their devotions in Exodus 25 every morning because they like to hear about building furniture and making curtains and pitching tents. Most of us prefer the first 15 chapters, the action, the excitement, the 10 plagues, Pharaoh getting hail dropped on his head. Or drowning in the Red Sea. That's a lot more exciting. But God obviously thinks that the instructions for and the building of the tabernacle is just as important as the more overtly exciting stuff about ten plagues and burning bush and leaving Egypt. You don't really know a man until you've seen his home. Who we are in public and who we are in private overlap. But as soon as you enter the home and see a person at home, you say, aha. That explains that part of the public persona. Brothers and sisters, that's what's going on from Exodus 25 onward. As God describes his house, this is a literary tour of his dwelling. If I took the time to try to describe in print without drawings or diagrams just this little church building, it would take quite a bit of space. And it's the same here in Exodus. God does not reveal himself with pictures, at least not today, but he did reveal himself with architecture. He showed Moses, here's what the heavenly tabernacle looks like, build one like this. The furniture of God's dwelling reveals the kind of person that God is. It tells us something about God, and that's why we're going to look at this furniture tonight. The first thing we see is three overall points. The first one, again, throughout our expedition of the tabernacle, we'll try to look at the obvious rather than at the arcane, esoteric, or hidden. People have spent lots of space in the past trying to figure out the meaning of every knob on the candlestick, on the menorah. We're not going to do that. We're going to try to talk about the obvious. And the first obvious thing from Exodus 25 onward is that God dwells with his people. God says, I will come and move in with you and I'll live in a tent in your midst. Right. So far, so good. But he doesn't just say that and move on to Leviticus chapter 1. He says it, and then he describes this tent in what we would consider exhausting detail. Enough about the tent already. I get it. You're coming to live with us. This is what your tent looks like. Okay. Okay. That's what we say, but the Lord says, no, I'm going to tell you more about my tent. Here's some more. Here's some more information about what the tent is made of, how it was set up, who the crew was that managed the tent and pitched it and took it down. Because God is making it as clear as He can and underlining it in 50 different ways. I live with you. I am part of this group. So God dwells with His people. Not only does He dwell with His people, He travels with His people. This is a portable place for God to live in. The temple... It was a regular permanent building, later built in Jerusalem, but the tabernacle is emphatically a tent, as we're going to see. It is different kinds of cloth stretched over a wooden frame. You roll up the cloth, you take the frame down, you pack it on a wagon, and you move to the next campsite. God doesn't force his people to come to him. He condescends to the point where he comes to them. That self-abasement is astonishing to behold. Other cultures travel to find their gods. They have to go meet their gods. right? right, we'll go to Delphi and get an oracle from the Delphic oracle. We'll go to Mount Olympus to seek God. We'll visit the sacred cave or the holy well or the holy river. God says, forget the sacred cave, the holy well and the holy river I'm coming with you. The kind of God who is willing to do that blows our minds. How can God say, I will leave the comforts of heaven and live in a tent in the desert indefinitely? But he does. But though he is living in a tent in the desert, he is not living in a drab or plain or ugly tint, right? Far from it. He associates with the lowly, but he does not embrace a drab aesthetic. His house has lots of gold-plated objects, costly colors and fabrics. We talked about that at length last time. His house is full of precious stones. God's house is beautiful, costly, and rich. He doesn't have everything decorated in the cheapest way possible, rather, right? It's sublime, beautiful, awe-inspiring. We can take from this uh, the first thing that you might think: the obvious application is church buildings should be beautiful, and that's true. Right? Church buildings should not be ugly, and in many cases, both through lack of money and through uh, foolish theology. We deliberately build our church buildings ugly. But the bigger takeaway is not spend money on the church building, but rather what is the temple of God? We are the temple of God. We should be putting our effort into making ourselves and our lives morally beautiful and sublime a fitting place for God to dwell. The building is the shell of the temple. It is the house of God's house, if you will. But the thing that matters is the people inside, and thus whatever effort we spend decorating the church building is not wasted, but it is misplaced if that effort supplants efforts to make our own lives and characters golden. We need to be the kind of people who make other people say, If God was going to dwell in a human being, it would be someone like that. That person is a fitting host for the Almighty. Right? This tabernacle is not just a part of Exodus to slog through as we say, all right, enough about the badger skins. It's a challenge to us to say, are you this beautiful? Is your life, is your group, your local church, do you measure up? If someone had to try to describe what we're like, would they have to resort to the imagery of gold and rich fabrics and precious stones? Or would they be searching on the discount rack at the dollar store for their metaphors? That church is like a cheap shower curtain. That church is God wants to dwell in a beautiful temple. We are being erected into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. The Spirit makes us beautiful under the care of Christ, the temple builder. And therefore, as living stones, we have to submit to His shaping, to His leading. We need to be a fitting place for Him to dwell. Well, with that in mind, we turn to look at the specific items, the four items that are listed in this chapter. The first is the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark of the Covenant, the most important item of furniture in the tabernacle, and the first listed. So this Ark is a small box. What? Uh, Two and a half cubits by a cubit and a half by a cubit and a half. A cubit is about 18 inches, so two and a half cubits long. Uh, right around 40-some inches. Not very big. A small wooden chest overlaid with gold with carrying poles attached. Now, in Egypt, digging in a tomb, they found a jackal god with carrying poles attached in rings on the side very much like this Ark of the Covenant. They found wooden boxes overlaid with gold. Some of them were covered with gold leaf. Others had very thin gold plates nailed on with tiny nails covering the whole box. That was a little disappointing to me. I had always imagined that they made the wooden box and then dipped it in a vat of molten gold. Apparently, that's not how they did it. At least not how they did it in Egypt. Anyway, right? there's overlap between the ancient Near Eastern environment and what we see Israel building. Portable tent shrines were known in the region. They are talked about in other sources. Apparently, Arab Bedouins used them into the 20th century. A little tent that you could knock down, carry with you, then set up and pay homage to your gods with this thing. But the, God spoke to his people in time and history. We wouldn't expect him to tell them to build something similar to a modern tent with fiberglass poles and all the curves and all of that kind of thing. God had them build a tent that looked in many ways similar to the tents that were built in that time and place. But the difference is where the meaning lies. And what's the big difference? The overwhelming difference is that there is no image of the God in this shrine. It's a tabernacle. God lives in it. But if you go inside, you don't see a statue of Jehovah staring at you. The closest we get is this featureless, comparatively featureless, Ark of the Covenant. Something that you clearly would never look at and say, that is supposed to represent God. It is a gold-covered box, a chest. (coughs) It has cherubim on the lid? Yes. But it does not have anything remotely resembling a picture of the Almighty on it. So what does the Ark mean? Well, there's reason to think that it might be related to the footstool. Uh, Many divine throne rooms in that era and temples contained footstools, and the ark is a little bit like a footstool. God also says, Heaven is my throne, earth is my footstool, where is the house you will build for me, in the book of Isaiah. But the ark is never directly called God's footstool. That would be the closest analog, the closest analogous item of furniture. In other temples but the ark is simply called here the ark of the covenant again we're trying to look for the obvious meaning and that obvious meaning to have a piece of furniture called the ark of the covenant that contains the ten commandments is that to god his covenant with his people is extremely important it's the first thing that's mentioned the document that summarizes that covenant the ten commandments the two tablets of stone he keeps right in his house, inside this box, in the holiest, most special place of all. Right? It makes you feel a little bad if you think, wow, boy, the thing I guard the most, my my safe with my my fireproof safe with special documents like my car titles. Really? That's the most important thing in my house. But the most important things in God's house are not his car and home titles and his birth certificate and his passport. No, it is this, the two tables of the law, that indicate his covenant with his commitment to his people. So God keeps covenant. God keeps the Ten Commandments. Again, in the most literal sense, he keeps the physical tablets that state the Ten Commandments. But also, metaphorically speaking, he doesn't break the law. He keeps the law. He has no other gods. He doesn't steal. He doesn't commit adultery. He doesn't covet. He is morally pure and upright. So God keeps covenant. He keeps the Ten Commandments. The atonement lid or mercy seat, as the King James translates it, (coughs) New King James translates it, is a separate item of furniture. The Ark of the Covenant, strictly speaking, is an open box. And the lid is a separate item of furniture called the atonement lid, or the mercy seat, or atonement cover. The Hebrew word simply seems to mean something most close to atonement cover. It covers perfectly the Ark of the Covenant. It's the same size. God perfectly covers the law seems to be what the meaning of the atonement lid is. When the law says, these people have broken the covenant, God says, that's covered. I already covered it. The atonement cover hides sin from view, hides the broken law from view. Further, we can say that, you know, the obvious to have an atonement cover means that God provides a way Atonement Atonement is something God does regularly if he has a piece of furniture in his house that's dedicated to atonement. He doesn't have to run out and borrow one from Baal when he needs to make some atonement. Rather, he keeps that in his house all the time. Right on top of the law, right on top of the covenant sits this atonement cover because God knew from day one that his people would break the law and violate the covenant, and so he puts in his home, in the holiest of holies, the place that is his private place, this item of furniture with which to cover their sins against the covenant. It's pretty astonishing, right? God already has humbled himself to travel with his people, and he also says, I will deal with your sin on an ongoing basis. I will keep this atonement lid in my house. Wow. Not only that, but God says He will speak to the people at this atonement lid. Verse 22, There I will meet with you, and I will speak with you from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubim, which are on the ark of the testimony, of all things which I will give you in commandment to the children of Israel. So, this house... This tent also has what we would call a parlor, which is simply the French word for speech. It is a room dedicated to talking. Now, that's not all that is done in the Holy of Holies, but clearly that is something that's done there. God says, the atonement lid is a place to talk. There, at the atonement lid, I will speak to you from between the cherubim. God speaks to His people in this house there's a place for them to come in or through their representative moses or the mediator and to hear from god everything that they need to know the people no longer need to be ignorant or cut off from god because they have a place where he will speak of all things which he will give you in commandment god makes provision for our need for a word from beyond the world Right there in his house is this place to talk. Finally, the text makes a big deal out of the cherubim that are above the mercy seat or molded on top of the mercy seat. They're described at length without ever being told exactly what they look like. The cherubim are depicted all over the ancient Near East in temples. If you've been to the British Museum, you've seen the Assyrian version of cherubim or Babylonian ones that were dug up somewhere over there. These things are terrifying. The winged bull with the face of a man and that huge Assyrian beard. They're about 10 feet tall. And they still, they feel scary. Objects have energy. That's how the curators at the museum describe it. A very neutral formulation without committing to any particular theory of what sort of energy the object's might have, but these things, you can feel their energy. Is. Supposedly, people who go to the museum often say there's certain zones of cold and hot air around them and all this stuff. Anyway, well worth going and seeing them. Obviously, the Ark of the Covenant didn't have room for cherubim that big. Whatever these things looked like, whether they were indeed two little angels with giant wings or something more like the winged bull cherubim of Assyria, we have no idea. The text does not say at all. What we know, though, is that these creatures are God's throne room guardians. You've all seen it in the movies. You've got the king, or the evil emperor, or whoever it is, and he's got his palace in the throne room, and inevitably in the throne room are guards. The guards are standing there, whether they have their pikes or their ray guns or whatever kind of movie you watch, the guards have their signature weapons. That's what these cherubim are. They are guards of the heavenly throne room. The presence of the cherubim signals you are in the presence of the Almighty in His place of power, in His throne room. And so... Watch what you do, because the cherubim with the flaming swords will come and take you out if you attempt anything against the power of God here in the throne room. So, it's a small little tent. And this, obviously, with only two rooms, every room has to do a number of duties. This room, the Holy of Holies, is a place to store the law. It's a place to speak to the people. It's a place to perform atonement. And it is a place where God reigns, where His throne room guards are present on this gold molding on the mercy seat. We move through the curtain, which is not mentioned in this chapter, but there was a curtain between the Holy of Holies and the Holy Place. Leaving the Holy Place, or the Most Holy Place, and going out to the regular Holy Place, the next item we see is the table of showbread. This this chapter doesn't mention the altar of incense either. It's mentioned later on, I believe, in chapter 31. The altar of incense was right outside the curtain. It was in the holy place, not in the most holy place. Not mentioned here. Moses goes directly to the table of showbread. (coughs) And again, we want to look for the obvious. There is a table... Here in God's house what is a table well a table is a place to eat <clears throat> you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies Psalm 23 God doesn't just prepare that table in the presence of the enemies he prepares a table in his own house now in the temples of the other gods in the near east the table was set for the God Food was put out for the God to eat. And this table, food is put out for the priests to eat, for human beings to eat, for God's servants to eat. The table has the ten or twelve the yeah, twelve loaves of bread stacked on it at all times, and the bread is replaced on a weekly basis. Once the old bread is taken off, it is taken to the priests, and they are allowed to eat of it. God is saying... I feed you with my own bread. This is the bread on which my face has shined for an entire week. Clearly, this is God's special bread, bread of the presence, bread of the face. It's called God, well, it's verse 30. You shall set the table, the showbread on the table before me always. All the time, this bread is there basking in the glory of God and then that bread goes out and feeds the people. The very bread of God's house from the Lord's table is for the people of God. Rather than being like the other deities who need to be fed and demand that their worshipers bring them food, our God feeds His people and says, I give you of my own special bread from my table. Here, it's yours. Take, eat. Right It's very clear that this bread is like the bread from heaven, the manna that they're eating at this time throughout the camp of Israel. And it's a foreshadowing of Christ, the true bread who comes down from heaven from the very face of God. So Christ, the living bread, is already foreshadowed here. There's a table in God's house, a place to sit and to eat. And the table is furnished with all kinds of dishes, You shall make its dishes, its pans, its pitchers and its bowls. You shall make them of pure gold. Everything you need right? Table service, bowls plates, cups, forks, knives, spoons it's all here and it's all pure gold. Other temples kept the table set all the time. So does this table. So does this temple. It's God's way of saying I feed you. The Final item of furniture that's mentioned is the menorah, the lampstand. again, that's the obvious. Well, if there's a lampstand with seven lamps, the light's on, somebody's home. When you enter this tent, it's not dark and dead. The light's on, which means there's someone here. There's life inside this tent. It's not an empty, dusty tent. It also tells us God dwells in inapproachable light the place of God's presence is bright so uh, Solomon's temple had ten menorahs We're told in first Kings uh, 70 lamps in that place and if you look at this room we have six fans with four bulbs each plus six spots in the front right, the number six there's a pattern here three on each side or a total of nine light fixtures, or of six light fixtures, all the bulbs. What is it? God is, God's worship should be brightly lit. we talked about this with Eutychus in the book of Acts. Luke mentions that it was nighttime and there were many lamps in the place where they were meeting. If you come into a church where the sanctuary is dark for worship, go back out again. That church does not understand the biblical witness that the worship of God is a brilliantly lit affair. So the lights are on in God's house, and the menorah itself symbolizes three additional things. If you think about this menorah, the single stem with the seven branches coming out, or six branches plus one light on the center branch, that Pattern looks a lot like Near Eastern depictions of the Tree of Life. If you see drawings or pictures of the Tree of Life, that's what it looks like like this lampstand. The Tree of Life, which gives God's people life forever, is similar to the menorah. The presence of God is light, and somehow that is symbolically tra- tied to the fruitful tree. And to life itself. If you notice, the lampstand is covered with almond blossoms. Verse 33, and throughout. Three bowls made like almond blossoms with a knob and a flower. What does the lampstand look like? It looks like a flowering almond tree. A fruit tree or a nut tree that has those beautiful flowers in the spring. Clearly, this lampstand is supposed to be a return or something reminiscent of the tree of life in the Garden of Eden in the presence of God. So that's one thing. The lampstand means fruitful tree of life in God's presence. So there's no light in heaven or no, no sun or moon, no artificial lighting. Instead, though, there is the tree of life growing on both sides of the river. The lampstand also symbolizes the church, as John is told very clearly in Revelation chapter 1. As he walks, he sees Christ walking among the golden lampstands. And Christ tells him, the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Out right? of all the items of furniture in the tabernacle, this one is the one to which the church is directly compared in the New Testament. We are the salt of the earth. We are the light of the world. We reflect the light of our Savior out into a dark world. We are the place of God's presence that brings light in the darkness. And so that's what the menorah means, the light of the world. In the tabernacle, the table and the lampstand are across from each other, when you walk in the door, and you walk between them to go to the Holy of Holies. I believe the lampstand is on the right, the bread is on the left. But God specifically says, verse 37, arrange the lamps so they shine their light in front of it. You don't want to direct the light just anywhere. The light is primarily directed onto that showbread on the table in front of the lampstand. So you walk in, you see the light, spotlight is on, this bread of the presence that God gives his people to eat. The light of the world illuminates the bread of God. This is the furniture of the tabernacle. God keeps covenant. God covers the law. God makes atonement. God feeds his people. The light is on. God is home. All of this is tied up in the furniture, right? The furniture is not meaningless. It is meaningful. You're so used to your furniture that you've forgotten what it means. But I guarantee you that if you look at an, a house ad that shows pictures of this home with furniture inside, if you go to tour a house, you'll, just, you'll realize, oh, furniture does mean something. I can tell what this furniture means. By looking at it, to a certain extent. Well, that goes for this furniture. When you see how God's house is furnished, you should say, this makes me love Him more. Trust Him more. I know Him now as the God who keeps a table with bread for His people. As the God who keeps the light on. As the God who is there, who makes atonement for my sins. So seek that atonement and forgiveness. Bask in His light. Find the law perfectly kept and perfectly covered in Him. Eat with Him at His table because He is the living bread. Let's pray. Father, we ask that You would help us to see the glory of Christ in the tabernacle. We thank You for these items of furniture and what they reveal to us about You and Your glory and Your Son and His glory. Father, make us resemble Jesus Christ. Help us to shine Your light into a dark world. Help us to live on the bread that is the bread of Your presence, the bread of Your face, the bread that conveys Your Son to us. I pray these things, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen.